On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Chris Fussell. They don't just want the answer. They want to know, you know, the gra- what's the history of the of the, the environment here, right? So what we were, and a point we're trying to make in one mission is um, there are some out there, today's environment, that would say, throw away bureaucracy, throw away hierarchy, just get rid of the org chart. We'll go to completely decentralized, leaderless organizations, um, self, self-organized, self etc. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all, so I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. He's a managing partner at McChrystal Group. He's a former officer in Naval Special Warfare with the Navy SEALs. He's an author of uh, One Mission that we're going to talk about today and a team of teams with General Stanley McChrystal. Chris, thanks for making time. Thanks, Jess. I appreciate it. So uh, fill in a couple of the gaps of, of things I missed there in the intro for people to understand a bit about where you've come from, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in, uh, in Southern Virginia. Um, Went to school in, in Virginia, and after I finished college, uh, joined the military in the late 90s with the intent of going into the, the SEAL teams. Um, at that age, really, for you know the adventure of it, I wanted, I'd grown up in, in athletics, always enjoyed being part of a small team. Um, I had some family members. My father was in the Green Berets. My uncle was in the SEAL teams in Vietnam. So some exposure to that, that part of the military. Uh, but no, mo- no big grand ideas. Just I wanted to be in this sort of action-packed sort of space, right? So that was the late '90s. I, I was it was a really interesting journey as a young guy coming out of college. But then obviously 2001 comes along, and the whole the whole world changes very quickly uh, for the military, especially because we get thrust right into this uh, this new type of, of warfare that we're now well over a decade into. 
And so that was uh, a, a unique opportunity for me. I was maybe five years into my career when things really started to shift and then did another 10 years of active duty um, all inside the, the SEAL teams, watching the from multiple levels, watching the, the global enterprise of special operations and broader military and interagency intelligence partners shift and adapt their uh, organizational models to be capable of operating with the speed and decentralization necessary in this sort of fight. Uh, what we were facing wasn't the traditional top-down sort of bureaucratically based uh, conflict that, that we expected to see if there was any sort of large-scale um, war effort. Instead, we were facing these very decentralized networks of individual fighters and small teams that were connected across the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan and really on a, with a global reach uh, when it came to recruiting, getting funding, all these other sorts of things that were, were critical. So a much different sort of process uh, that drives a network versus a tradi traditional system. So I, the, the most impactful experiences in my career were watching as the organization evolved to be able to fight in that sort of environment effectively. And then I left active duty in 2012 and have since um, partnered with Stan McChrystal at the McChrystal Group. And we our, our group focuses on helping other organizations go through a similar transition because everyone is now feeling this shift where the speed and interconnectivity of the information age is creating new sorts of threats that bureaucratic models that were created in the 20th century are no longer sufficient models in and of themselves to handle. So... It's been a great, uh, you know, 15, 20 year run since I first joined the service and uh, a lot of great experiences. Well, you know, I am a total book nerd and uh, love teams of team of teams. Um, you know, our consulting firm, we do we're a Shingo affiliate. We teach the, the Shingo version of like lean methodologies, continuous improvement stuff. And so everything you guys put in there about Taylorism and, and how, you know, those factory systems are not great for complex work was was amazing but now in one mission i mean where you've gone back to the roots of bureaucracy and and why it seemed like a benefit to bring in at that point but how it may not be serving us as well now i mean i'm i i love to recommend it to my clients i feel like this um concept of you know less silos one mission unifying um with that rapid iteration that communication is something that is can become like a significant competitive advantage for people accomplishing their mission. Can you talk about where the book came from or, or like why you chose this of the many things you could have written on? Sure. Yeah. The, um, the, the, we wrote one mission based on a lot of feedback we got from the market. So people that had picked up team of teams and said, yeah, this is interesting. It makes sense. Um, the, the big theory of the case that we laid out in that book um, found an audience in all sorts of different spaces, um, from, you know, large enterprise to government to nonprofit to healthcare. We've had interesting conversations with and done work in all those spaces with people that say, yeah, this is this is very very similar to what's happening in my space. But um, we'd love to know more detail around what actually happened. What were the process changes that that took place for this model to, for, for the organization to shift to this sort of model? So. That's where the idea of writing this uh, one mission the way we did came from, to really try to tease out what do organizations need to do in today's environment to, to make this transition uh, as quickly and effectively as, as possible. 
And so that was sort of the underpinning and the driving uh, factor behind putting the book together. And so I was uh, fortunate and uniquely positioned in my career in special operations to be uh, actually in the right staff positions, which is not the most glamorous side of uh, special operations. There's countless guys that had much more interesting uh, tactical careers out, out on the battlefield. Um, but I had just the way my sort of career timeline worked out was able to sit in some positions overseas with and around certain leaders and different parts of the organization where I could really observe how the enterprise was functioning, which I became just sort of obsessed with, went on to grad school, did some some uh, thesis work on how information sharing was taking place on a, on a global sort of network level. And so writing the follow-up to Team of Teams was sort of a very natural move to just say, okay, well, here's what I observed. Here are the key sort of areas that, it, that it, any leader in, in, in industry should be looking at um, if they want to, to sort of push their, uh, their enterprise through this shift. You know, things like the speed of the external environment. So we talk a lot in one mission about how different the cadence of a, a distributed network in, in our world, that was Al Qaeda and other sort of similar terrorist networks. How how much quicker they're able to move and adapt to, to situations on the ground than a, than a traditional bureaucracy. Uh, how do you decentralize decision making down into the ranks? Sort of the coin of the realm in today's world is: Can I keep my large enterprise stable and aligned fast enough all the way down to that small team level so that those closest to the problem? can move from problem one to two to three. And that can be that can be missions on the ground. That can be closing deals. That can be any number uh, of things. How do I create that cadence to make that possible? Just so, so a whole series of sort of gates that people can consider. That was the goal of, uh, of One Mission. Well, I think it's pretty inspiring. You know, I had, um, we're working on something with Google right now, and I'd gone out and done the site visit and, uh, you know, learning about their Thursday afternoons where the whole company gets to tune in to what, what's going on with the CEOs right after lunch. And you, anybody can go to the cafeteria and ask questions right to the CEO. And it's like this live across the thousands of people. I, I was like super impressed. I came back, met with some larger clients of ours and talked to them about, how, you know, how often is this information getting out? And we started working on some things. And then uh, when I read your book, probably got your book maybe two weeks after. And when I heard about the daily cadence, I mean, it was just like on steroids. I was like, wow, that... No wonder um, that was so helpful for you guys. Um, can you talk for just a second? I mean, I know it's in the book, but can you talk a little bit about where the concepts of bureaucracy came from and, and why this idea even came up in society? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so the first part of the book, um, we, we, we work to frame out some of the history because, you know, a lot of readers like yourself, um, they, they don't just want the answer. They want to know, you know, the what's the history of the, of the, the environment here, right? So... What we were and a point we're trying to make in one mission is um, there are some out there in today's environment that would say, throw away bureaucracy, throw away hierarchy, just get rid of the org chart. We'll go to completely decentralized, leaderless organizations, um, self self-organized, et cetera. Uh, I, I still personally believe that that has a, an upper limit limit when it comes to scalability. Um, and there's so there's some some discussion in one mission around the concept of how big networks can get before they start to either fall apart or layer on top of themselves some sort of bureaucratic structure, right? So, so bureaucracies aren't all bad, and they come from a very thoughtful group of intellectual leaders in, in Europe during, you know, industrial revolution timeframe when people started to realize 
we have the option now because uh, we've harnessed this energy. We know how to produce things at scale. We can build large organizations, but how would we manage them and make them fair and make them uh, meritocratic uh, versus a very traditional system at that point going back 150 years or so where, it, you know, even in Europe, it was who you were, what family you were born into, sort of your, your destiny was preordained. And so a large part of the initial thinking around bureaucracy was a social movement to say, look, if we're, re if we're really going to optimize the potential we have to industrialize ourselves, then we have to have a fair system where people can come into those organizations, learn skills, learn how to run whatever, whatever it is we're trying to do and then promote up. And so we have to come up with fair ways to, to measure them. We have to give them spans of control. And it was in many parts, uh, in a large part, designed to defeat sort of just a familial uh, basis <laughs> for how well you were going to do in life. Right. Yeah. So, so a, a well-run bureaucracy could overcome that. And, so, and they're very scalable and you know what you can teach people. And then the extension of that is then big systems say, well, now we want a good education system. Maybe let's make a public education system that gets ready, people ready to be part of this. So it's all this sort of how do we make society better, more stable, more controlled? Um, you know, it's easy to forget how how massively chaotic the world was just 150 years ago. Um, you know, every measurable metric is exponentially better now. So this was early social thinkers considering how we can help collectively bond ourselves and not want to fight all the time and, and scale and be, just create a better society. So uh, Max Weber is one of the German uh, social thinkers that we that we quote uh, extensively inside of uh, One Mission, who was one of the founding sort of idea uh, fathers of this idea. But then you follow the natural extension and it comes into a lot of the traditional systems we'll learn about in, in business school and what we saw sort of dominate the, the latter part of the 20th century around, you know, uh, Drucker and, and other big, you know, Sloan and these big thinkers that said, here's how you do this with mass efficiency and you can scale it exponentially higher than anyone thought and you can come up with these amazing career paths and training etc cetera, etc cetera. uh and, and we're going to figure out how to measure people all the way down to their you know the lowest levels and and performance metrics they're trying to meet etc all of that you know we're all very familiar but there's there's real stability that comes from that what we and the military learns from industry constantly as far back as you want you can go in history right so a lot of the military thinking that i grew up inside of was based on these uh bureaucratic models that it works so well in industry and works well on the battlefield right so that's the model that we took into this conflict essentially sort of oversimplifying it a little bit but this big top-down very measurable very controlled predictability-based bureaucracy. And it then encounters a distributed network that doesn't play by any rules, doesn't want to put any order in its wake, just its only desires to create as much chaos as possible. And the rules are sort of limitless. So those two systems don't marry up. So in, in one, one mission, we lay out the, where the organization eventually got, which we describe as this hybrid model where the traditional bureaucracy still exists, but with the high cadence communication model that you referenced, with the decentralized nature of decision making, with all these other factors that we started to layer in and learn from the, the Al Qaeda network at, at first that we were fighting, we started to layer in network behavior inside that traditional model. So it became the hybrid structure between the two. It had stability and predictability of a big system, but the adaptability and fast moving nature of, of a network. Well, um you know, if you read modern literature on innovation, like um, 
you know, Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From, or his TED Talks, right? And you see the research about the rate of innovation and its correlation to people in their hunch bumping into somebody else in their hunch. You know, there's, it's, it feels like pretty irrefutable, you know, evidence that the higher these rates of communication, the, the higher the rates of innovation. And I feel like you've made such a great case in the book that, you know, if your if your target audience, whether it's consumers, whoever it is, if they're in a if they're in a fast paced environment where things are iterating and, and stuff is innovating, and your organization is built to have you know fourteen levels of sign offs before anything gets done, you know these these two things are not likely to match up, right? Um, and I feel like you make such a great case for having a cadence in an organization, having these you know, cross silo communications happen at a rate to stay ahead of the consumers you're trying to service or, or the mission you're up against. Um, but one of the things I feel like you spoke to, and I, I would love to talk about, um, is this idea of humility and leadership, you know, that it really, you know, one guy can't make all the decisions. If you're going to have a system that keeps up with innovation and iterations out there, um, can you talk about your background and, and the soft community and, and kind of how you guys have lived that and, and the concept as you teach it in the book? Yeah, I, I think it's a critical part of the change that organizations need to, to make today. And so one of the ideas we try to lay out in, in one mission is just told through my, my observation being in that community and tied a little bit to just sort of human nature and the way we're all structured to think and we all want to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves and something that has meaning there's lots of different ways people describe that but that's sort of a core part of humanity right and so when we go through times of great stress and change and you know a battlefield's a great example of this because it's so so visceral and in your face but many people have been through dramatic periods or certainly have seen them. There's tons of history about you know, great change around the world. We want to tie, there's part of us that wants to tie that to a single individual. And then so-and-so showed up and everything was better. And they just mm-hmm. had the grit and the focus and the intelligence. And it were, if it weren't for Churchill, we would, wouldn't have won the war. If it weren't for Dr. King, there wouldn't have been a civil rights movement. Those people are absolutely critical, but that's not the complete history by any stretch. Those people showed up and led a movement. They knew how to pull people into the problem. And they told the right story to an audience that finally got it. And they were able to create this massive shift, you know, societal shift, global shift, creating allies that would fight evil around the world. Uh, So it wasn't because of their all-knowing presence, right? Uh, It was because of their ability to form the right relationships and pull people into the fold, often at great risk and peril to to themselves. But I think in, in you know, previous times when things moved slower, it's easier to just say, well, it's, then, then Eisenhower was put in charge and, and here's what he did as a great leader. Well, things move too fast. That, that, that's really never been the true story. But in today, if you try to live to that, where the great person is going to show up and lead us through this difficult time, there's no way you're going to move fast enough. So what I started to see was from the bottom up, was our leadership shifting their approach to how they spoke to us and coming at the problem and coming at their communication with us in the in the ranks through a lens of real humility. Now, I don't think they would have described it like that at the moment, but in hindsight, the type of language they used started to change. So they we, we did these, you, you referenced these daily communication structures. So we had 
much like Google's Weekly, we would have six, 7,000 people a day on one communication network for an hour and a half. And we did that seven days a week for years on end. And I'm using the royal we here. Our leadership sort of drove this change for us. But they were they demonstrated a humility and, and servant-based leadership model to all of us where they would show up to these forums and say, okay, tell me, tell me what you know. And they would go out to folks in the field that had just gone through 20 hours of just intense operations and say, what's the newest things that we need to understand as a collective about this network we're fighting? And they would receive raw, ugly intelligence. They would hear uncertainty. They would allow teams to say, we tried this and didn't work. And then we did this. and It was a little bit better, but we're still unsure. You know, very honest language. So not a clean, bureaucratic, you know, make sure the report looks nice before the boss sees it sort of exchange but real honest back and forth dialogue. And then their reaction to that was what ultimately demonstrated to us like the importance of humility because they were saying, oh, that's that's really interesting. Okay, I hadn't thought about that. No one's seen that before. What do you think it means? What, what should we be thinking based on that? Does anyone else see this pattern? Okay, well, here's what that makes me think. And at the strategic level, here's what I think we should be considering based on that newest information. So showing that I don't, I don't have the answers. There's not a secret playbook in my desk. Like I'm figuring this out just as quickly as you are. So the more honest and transparent we can be with each other, the faster all of us are going to get to that next level. And only through demonstrating that level of humility and intellectual curiosity and true servant leadership were all of us comfortable saying, oh, this is a two-way street. We have to be show, have the moral courage to be honest up and into our leadership, and they have to have the leadership competence to to truly lead as a as a servant you know present the humility that the that the complexity of the problem actually requires you know um it's interesting to me with with my years of having military clients for our consulting firm how i felt like some of the some of the least efficient clients i've ever served and some of the most efficient clients i've ever served have both come from the military you know on your on your Website here for McChrystal Group. Um, it talks about you being in SEAL Teams 2 and 8 and then on to Naval Special Warfare Development Group. And um, when you think about, like, some of the folks who, you know, really it's like, hey, what do you think you should do about this? You're talking to somebody lower down the organization, and the answer is whatever the colonel thinks. You know, it's almost like check your brain at the door and, and do whatever the person on top thinks. And then you look at, you know, at the National Mission Force level, you know, how much flexibility you guys give your folks, you know, credit to the, to the eyes on the prize, you know, the guys who are right there, um, how much flexibility you give. Why do you think that um, it's so hard for leaders to give up that control? Why do you think there aren't more folks who um, can more easily transition to, to the way you guys operate at that highest level in special operations of trusting the folks on the ground and and investing more in training up front so you can trust them? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways you could go to try to think that through. Um, the unique advantage, and, and to, just to qualify where I was in the structure, I mean, I was on the receiving end of a lot of this. So I, I, I can give you what, what I sort of felt happening. And then any, any comments I have from the strategic level are based on conversations I've had with people that were at that level since, um, since leaving active duty. I think one of the uh, in the column of unique advantages in that community, you have you know multiple selection phases that people go through to, to get there, and you're selecting for very specific types of personalities. And there are parts of uh, 
you know, civilian world that, that has, you know, professional schools and you're, uh, you know, taking the bar exam and physicians, et cetera, they go through gates like that. So, you know, you have a certain type of personality, certain skill set. Um, industry has, you know, a certain type of personalities will get into different, different vectors, uh, in their career, but the, the military has unique advantage of being able to very intensely select for a certain type of person. So that is, that is a unique, uh, advantage that allows you to start with some sort of common baseline understanding of the organization. But I would, I would say, were it not for the complexity that we encountered in the post 9-11 battlefield and the realization that playing it through a playing that game through a just a rote playbook that was written in the 20th century wasn't going to work i don't know if the military would have made this transition or not mm. you know the, the 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 human capital that you describe and that what the selection has got you has always been high caliber right just because of the way you can you can select for it uh, but in before I got in the service, um, you know, so late 20th century, the last two or three decades, as, as special operations really started to get up onto its get its legs underneath it. Um, you know, if you read about the history of it on the ground, those teams are always highly adaptable. So once they get out of the helicopter, like it's it's game on. That that human capital has always been, you know, relatively speaking, the same same caliber. Uh, but what got them there 30, 40 years ago, the process that got them there was much more top down and structured than it than it was today. And, and so that top down structured model is what we brought into the post 9-11 environment where the thinking will happen up here and then we'll we'll distribute uh, small teams our resource out into the fight. And so a very controlled sort of approach. Well, eventually that, that those small teams are just getting swarmed by this interconnected <laughs> network-based problem. That forced the change. That's when the leadership said, oh, shit, this isn't working. We gotta, we've got to really change the, the empowerment that we give down to these teams. We have the right human capital. We have the right equipment, the training, all that stuff is working. Anytime they get to the problem, they win. But uh, they're not able to move fast enough. And they can't move fast enough because – um, that creates strategic risk because they things are changing too quickly. So they have to check in, let us know what they know. We'll tell them what to do next. So let's speed that up, which is what you see a lot of industry trying to do right now. Let's let's crank up the bureaucratic system as fast as we possibly can and talk to any industry leader, as I'm, I know you do all the time. And they all say some version of all my people are working 20 hours more a week than we were 10 years ago, and we're getting behind the problem. It doesn't add up. And I would say, yeah, of course, it doesn't add up because you're facing nonlinear problems that connect and create problems in a way that didn't happen before the information age really took over. So that's what we encountered. And that's what forced the leadership to say, this is going to get uncomfortable. We, we have to decentralize down to these teams and allow them to move with autonomy, which is why we created this very aggressive communication and resynchronization forums. I love it. Well, I think we're going to cut it off here for part one of the episode. Um, make sure to tune into the next episode. We're going to be talking to Chris more about this servant leadership and, and how the rest of us can become more like the highest levels of spe special operations and communicate more and faster. Um, thanks so much. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes, so we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes. And to learn more about child rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening.
Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.